Oh, 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 that's so disgusting. Oh, my God, that's the worst thing I ever heard in my life. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer, TGIF, everybody. This is Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Manson Mitchell. We are in your ears now and hopefully throughout the hour. Glad to have you with us and glad, of course, to be working once again with bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, how are you today, sir? I'm doing very well. This is Sam, and he's filling in for Benny. Yeah. We were talking Sam Elliott yeah. before you came on. Oh, I thought it was Artie Johnson offering <laughs> oh. me a Walmetto. There's that one, too. Well, you know, Gary, it's what's for no. dinner. Yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'll work on it. That's all I got. <laughs> you have all hour. I, yeah, I know. I, I have all hour. Totally. Sam Elliott, if you ask me. I thought it was pretty good. Thank you, Suzanne, my one fan. And before yeah. we go to our special guest today, I'd like to ask you, now we watched the Weather Channel and uh -huh. it's made the national news so that even here in Sarasota, we were seeing the footage of snow, particularly in Everett, they were showing, but I have a feeling <laughs> it's pretty much throughout Puget Sound. Is that spate of snow over with? Snowmageddon! Snowmageddon! Uh, you and, know, yeah, it, it kind of came and gone. That's pretty much what I expected. We had like a couple flakes at the studio, but then literally like 10 miles north, they had like four feet, so I I don't know. It's crazy. Oh, so they're not throwing the buses onto the interstate this not, year? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Man, I remembered when that happened. Bus slid right down the hill. Mm -hmm. oh, oh, the one yeah. that was overhanging. Yeah, overhanging. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember that Yeah, the one. interstate there. Mm -hmm. And a couple of times, Suzanne and I, when we lived in the area and were driving to the radio station, what our listeners need to know is that 11.50 a.m. KKNW is headquartered on, on the hill. fifth floor of the T-Mobile <laughs> building in Bellevue, in the Factoria area, and it's on a hill. Yep. And you may think you're going up, but you're going to find out otherwise in a matter of seconds on certain days. Benny, do you sometimes just sleep at the station? Uh, I did actually on Sunday because I was a little nervous Sunday night to Monday morning. I was a little, just a little apprehensive, a little nervous. I was out, you know, and I just like, you know what, I'm up, I'll just bebop it up to the station and it was kind of coming down at the moment and i figured it would just be a new wave of you know a couple feet because of course snowmageddon and everyone can't drive in it and around like three o'clock in the morning then i i took a little nap on the floor in here and then i looked outside it was all gone i was like what happened what happened you know sam Elliott would have been impressed <laughs> so, i think we've we've acquired a new character yeah right i'm just trying to break it out all right. Today we're going to talk to somebody who has a very different accent, and he has a lot of expertise <laughs> and some pointed views to share as we now This are, is the third time. We're yeah. in a historic passage in America, yeah. an impeachment trial. Impeachment yep. Yep. of President Donald J. Trump is underway, and we have a man with us who has some things to say about that and all things Trump and even about the status of the Republican Party in 21st century America. But first, why don't we go ahead and give the man his mad props. The book we read by him came out in 2018 and we interviewed him twice a week apart, part one and part two, but we, we just couldn't wait anymore. We wanted to talk to this gentleman some more. Patrick Andendahl has always had an interest in politics and being multicultural, he views issues from a more international perspective. 
in 2004, five days before the election. He flew to Cleveland and pitched in to help with the political process. What he discovered was the dissolution of the American dream, which he writes about in his first book called Stupid Party. Ending up in New York via romance in the African bush, Andadal Lau lives in Long Island with his wife, two children, and two dogs. His second book was Who is Jeb? Birth of the Stupid Party. And the book that I have in my hands is called Deliverance from Stupid Party Land, How to Eradicate the Destructive Forces Destroying American Democracy. And so for the third time, we are very pleased to have with us Patrick Anadol. Glad you could join us today, Patrick. Well, thank you very much for having, you, having me on your show again. Yeah. <laughs> this is the year to talk politics. This is <laughs> when, isn't, when isn't it? Unfortunately. Right. Well, yeah, that's true. When isn't it? Um, you know, I was we were looking through your book again this morning. We read a lot about Mike Pence. I know there's questions that Gary has. And uh, one of the things that's kind of overarching, and I thought maybe it would be a place to start since we hadn't talked to you in a year is on page 130, you uh, write, uh, do I have the right thing? Uh, sanity still lives and thrives if you seek it out. Quite how this is occurring could be explained either by the laws of the universe demanding a balance or by technology running forward faster than myth can take us back. And so I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. And I wonder where you feel like we are today. If sanity is thriving, is it a matter of balancing good and ill? Or do you think it's a matter of technology just taking off faster than they can set us backwards? Um, well, you know, you need, in these depressing times, one needs hope. One needs to be fine positive, uh, even though you have to dig sometimes quite dig. Uh, deep for them. Um, and I guess when I was writing that chapter, I was looking at things, that, the trends that are going well rather than all the many trends that are going badly. And, uh, you know, some of the trends would be people becoming somewhat less religious. Um, and therefore, if you do that, you, 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 you're more inclined to go into critical thinking rather than mythical beliefs. I guess one of the things that I've been really, one way I, when you, when you shop, when you have dinner parties or whatever, you meet with your friends, I think the overwhelming sense is like people just, just don't want to talk about Trump anymore. You know, it's just, like, it's just so depressing. It's just so bad. It's so awful. Uh, and people are sort of burnt out. Not that we can afford to be burnt out, but that's sort of where we're at. Now, when it comes to um, positive trends, what I like to do, what I like to think about a lot, is, for instance, transportation. I like to think of electric vehicles. I like to think of the possibility of the death of oil. <clears throat> I happen to believe, if you read all three of my books, and it's sort of, uh, you know, Stupid Party in the first book, I sort of imply it began in 2000, with the 2000 election. But deep down, I, subconsciously, I knew that the roots of it um, were laid way before, you know, way before 2000. And it really, in my mind, when I really investigated it, and as I started writing the book about Jeb, Bush, and it was really about the Bush family. It really, to me, became quite obvious that the trigger point was the assassination of Kennedy, which was to do with energy, I believe. And all the events since then, and Jimmy Carter's energy warning in 1977, 
uh, where he said, you know, the America must get an intelligent energy policy. It's not that complicated to figure out what to do. Of course, he's ignored. And of course, we've now had all the Middle Eastern wars caused by uh, oil interests or demand, uh, terrorism triggered by those same events and all the rest. So what I like to do, and it's somewhat a controversial subject, and I think the penny has yet to drop with even 90% of progressives. What I like to do is talk about oil and how we can get rid of it. And obviously the man behind that, the man who's already put us 10 years ahead of the curve where we have been without him would be uh, Elon Musk and Tesla and what what they're achieving, which will actually probably mean that a lot of car companies in about, you'll start figuring this out in two or three years, years to see several legacy car companies will go out of business, starting probably with BMW and then Daimler-Benz, and then, one, then it'll either be General Motors or Ford um, or Chrysler. So what's happening in this is really exciting. I mean, if you buy a, a Model 3 right now, it's, which costs, well, you can get it for 39000 actually technically you can get it for 35000 It's the same cost of ownership as a Toyota Camry, and yet such as, which goes at, what, 23000 So the five-year cost of ownership of those two cars is the same. And therefore, if you have a garage with the ability to have a, your own uh, electrical source, why would, you buy, why would you buy a Toyota Camry? It makes no economic sense. It, no, it makes no moral sense. It makes no ethical sense. So that's where we're at, and people are just beginning to figure that out. So that's what I find exciting. That's what I find. Um, <laughs> I mean, for instance, like uh, the, oil, the uh, car industry spends $35 billion on advertising I think worldwide, 35 billion. And yet you just spend time looking at any one of those adverts and see what are they saying about their car. There's actually nothing of interest, of substance in what they're saying. They're selling to a part of your no. they're selling. They're selling a dream. They're not selling right. a vehicle worth selling. It's interesting, Patrick, that Gary and I had dinner last night with a couple who owns a Tesla. But now, to add to that, they are completely powering their home with solar, and um, they are powering it. They have so many solar panels that they sell the electricity back to the electric company, Florida Power and Light, and, and, and they run their car with all this excess electricity that they have coming back from Florida Power and Light. Yep. So it essentially costs them nothing to run their Tesla. And, that, and correct. I think and to I, myself that these guys are brilliant. Well, what, 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 to, to, in New York, I pay 18, it's very simple the math. I pay um, 18 cents uh, per kilowatt. So it costs me 18, I have a 100 kilowatt car, so it costs me $18 in New York to fill a tank with, for 330 miles of range. So in New York, has most some of the most expensive energy costs in the country. So I think the nationwide average is 13 cents. So it's $13 to fill a tank compared to whatever people pay for 300 miles, I don't know, $60. And then, of course, once you start getting your own energy, and I've got a rather cheap asphalt roof on I mean, Americans seem to think that a 30-year, uh, 30-year lifestyle on a roof is acceptable. Where I have a... In England, you know, we have Kentish Tile, and that's 500 years. But 30 years, I mean, I'm thinking, are you nuts? And you can get a – you don't have to have solar panels anymore. You can get solar tiles that are just coming out, just becoming available, and they'll be guaranteed for as long as the life of the house. The energy part won't be guaranteed. That, but I think the energy part will be guaranteed for, like, whatever it is, I think 30 years. I'm not sure. But, yeah, so you're getting to the point where if you, you can – and it's that, that very attractive roof – those 
those solar tiles are now very attractive. And I think they're working. I haven't, I'm not an expert on the math here, but I think in many cases they're working out to be the cost of ownership of theirs. You know, once you build in a five, seven-year time frame, you're going to start making money compared to a, a relatively cheap roof. I mean, I'm not sure if it beats asphalt. I don't know. But, um, I, I think at one point in time it was very hard to get your money back from putting in solar panels from the expense. Yeah, but the but cost I think, of I think that the whole way has come down. It's the Tesla, it's the Tesla, right. it's the Tesla tiles that I'm interested in. Um, and I'm, and I, I got a feeling like the Mac is now version 3 has come out in the last three or four months. And I got a feeling that's way more affordable than their previous version, which in when they came out with a big announcement two years ago, but they've been trying to like test it. And I think it's now about to hit big time, especially in places like California. And, you know, if you've got California fire, you know, I think California is now making it all new construction has to have some sort of solar roof on top of it, I think. And I think the new building regulations are going to insist that you have the ability to have a power wall so you can charge your electric vehicle. And if you, you know, you're looking at places like Austra Australia um, and California are remarkably similar, where you know, they've got these massive catastrophes going on left, right, and center. And these people who are experiencing this know they need to sort of get off the grid, have their own power supply, and, and all the rest. So I think that California and now southern Australia particularly, because you've know, got that massive battery utility put there by Tesla, because he promised... And the, Australia is extremely corrupt because of the energy interests and their coal, their, their coal interests. But he promised, I think it was the governor or whatever they call of South Carolina, they were having an electrical grid blackout and all the rest. He said, I can solve that problem in 100 days. Uh, and if I can't solve it in 100 days, I'll give it to you for free. So he did it. He did it in 100 days or less. And he sold, basically he solved the blackout problem they're having in South Australia. And now they're expanding that whole facility and it's going to have, be a virtual grid of 50,000 homes. I think they're in that phase two of that process where, you know, people can actually be off the grid and also putting money back into the grid, though, uh, for excess power for, to prevent blackouts. So these, peak, these battery uh, plants that will replace these gas peaker plants is obviously working out really well. So it's another reason, you know, so that within all this stuff, I, we're running out of time on global warming, but we're also reaching a point of critical mass where we can get ourselves off off oil demand and off ice engines. It's coming it's, in five years' time. I think we'll be throwing rocks at people driving an ice SUV. I think the public's this opinion is going to move so rapidly. Um, you've got countries like like places in Rome now already immediately they're just banning um, certain streets around the Colosseum. They're banning diesel engines because of the car. I was actually in Italy and I just smelling the diesel and uh, on the on car just really made me mad. Really, I'm breathing in this NOT too diesel stuff from these corrupt German car companies. And it's not just Volkswagen. They're being encouraged by the German government to, or not, or not they're not being prevented from, by the German government from uh, telling untruths about diesel and how clean it is. So they're still doing it, and they're now facing this potential crisis. I think Volkswagen may have just gotten the message their chairman, or President Dies, will Dies is now saying, we've got to change before we go extinct like the Nokia phone. So they're figuring that out, and it's happening very rapidly. So that's good. That's exciting. And whatever projections you see for EVs coming out by rate, and obviously Wall Street doesn't get it because these cars, they're analyzed by car companies. They're not analyzed by tech people. They're not, they're not understanding what's happening in the big picture. So Wall Street's still way off. 
with the possible yeah. exception of Cathy Woods at Ark and Warren, yeah. Warren, Ron Barron and a few, one or two other people are beginning, the penny's beginning to drop is what's happening here. So that's exciting, and I enjoy thinking about things like that because I've been against oil all my life. And, you know, I'm sort of somewhat bitter and twisted about American oil, oil energy. I always have been bitter and twisted about American energy policy. Now, I- interesting that oil is made up of old dinosaurs, and the death of oil could be also the death of some of these old dinosaurs that whole, keep so many trying to sell us oil. And, yep. and uh, you know, we've been reading about flying cars in Europe now. And they're not going to need, you know, roads or infrastructure once that comes about. Well, to be fair to Elon, one reason why I like Elon Musk so much is, you know, talking about flying cars. Uh, one of my great comments is like, um, he's not so keen on it because he says, "Who wants to be living in a world of flying cars?" Uh, and I sort of get it. That's why his tunneling idea makes a bit more sense. But the thought of a million, billions of cars, billions of cars up in the air, is sort of, a, I guess, they could follow routes. And it might be becoming somewhat feasible with battery technology. I mean, battery technology in these battery technology does make, if you assume the sort of progress in the next five years, it would make short haul flight possible. But it's, I don't think I think it's mathematically impossible to have long haul flights with with batteries. I don't think that unless there's some brand new invention. Um, but you know, so flying cars may say a bit nervous. And it's, well, the fun thing about Elon Musk is, and I think people don't give him credit, he says, I want to live in a world where there's hope, where the world is better today than it was yesterday. And he's willing to consistently put his whole wealth on the line, like going to the casino, putting, putting everything down on, on 36 and hoping to, and, and that's what he's done three or four times through his career, and it looks like it's paying off. Patrick, I would like to, uh, one thing I will say about flying cars, we may someday get cars in the air, but you still won't get a lot of people to use their turn signals. <laughs> Why don't you yeah. go from... Well, of course, they, of course they won't need to, because it's all going to be autonomous. I think that, um, again, yes. Musk is saying autonomy by the end of this year, which that's Musk time, so people who factor in Musk time think actually the chances of somewhere legalizing autonomous uh, driving could be by the end of 2021. There's probably going to be some region in the United States that allows it. And once one or two regions allow it, then it will just mushroom. It will be explosive growth of autonomous driving. Um, and also, I think the, the Waymo, the Google effort, the LiDAR, which they're experimenting with Phoenix, they might get, they might be first to the plate with Phoenix, but it's geofenced. And I don't think LiDAR can work in the long term. And I think more and more people are figuring out that the Waymo approach is probably sort of a bit of a dead end. When it comes to technology, particularly as it relies on computer technology and some artificial intelligence as well, Seattle and Puget Sound will be leading the way. So you are speaking to the people around whom these things are going to be happening in large measure. That's an exciting prospect. I wanted to get back to the political realities of our day, Patrick, because, 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 We have an impeachment trial in the Senate. They've been sworn in. They've taken the oath. We can go in any number of directions, Patrick, but let me just project ahead. It may be weeks. It may be two or three months before this is all over. But when it is done, and I see it as a foregone conclusion that President Trump will be acquitted by the Senate, what do we say to Donald Trump on the day the trial ends? He is acquitted, and he loudly pronounces that 
The radical Democrat hoax has been exposed. The witch hunt is over. Total vindication in the Senate. And now let's go on to win in November of 2020 so that we can have four more years of Donald Trump. You're an astute political observer. How does that <laughs> land on your ears? That's a tough one. That's really tough. You know, it's not like facts really bother. That really matters that much anymore, it seems to me. And it's a, you know, it's a tough road to hoe. But we sort of know we've known this is the likely outcome ever since this, this process was initiated. I was, you know, I thought Pelosi did the right thing in delaying it. Um, she could have delayed it more. Who knows? I'm not going to second guess the chess game that's going on there in the Senate and uh, in, 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 in Washington, D.C. I think you sort of say, well, he's impeached. And, and it's, it's, not a, it's not an overwhelming argument, but he has been impeached by the Congress. And you say, look, if it, depending on how the trial goes and depending on what John Roberts does, you know, the narrative will form around that. But in a scenario where they don't call witnesses, when there's more and more stuff that's happened even since he was impeached, whether it be this guy Parnas or the General Accounting Office, saying that they broke the law. I mean, nobody's ever complained about the General Accounting Office being a partisan organization ever. If you want an answer to any problem, either party, I was just talking to some right-wing person the other day who hadn't even heard of the General Accounting Office. If you want something, to, if you've got some idea with taxes or policy issues, you send it to the General Accounting Office, they shove it into this passive computer, and that spits out an answer. This is what happened. Well, the General Accounting Office, uh, uh, never heard either party really complain about them, has now said, you know, that withholding those funds is breaking the law. So <clears throat> it's sort of rather, so the narrative rather depends on how, what actually happens in the Senate. You know, you've got four or five Republicans who will, uh, you're worried about re-election, and they might try and <laughs> do the right thing in quotes, doing the right thing just purely on politics, who knows? But, you know, you've got, you've got enough there that might just turn the tide and allow witnesses. And once you allow witnesses, you're not quite, you can't be sure what will happen. Obviously, Bolton and, uh, uh, and uh, I've forgotten the other guy, the, the press secretary guy, uh, the head of staff, Mulvaney, uh, you know, they, they were there, they witnessed it, they know it happened. Um, everybody knows, every Republican knows that um, he broke the law. But they're scared. They're scared now of the, of, of, uh, the Justice Department run by Barr. You know, this, you know the, the, the way they take down the, the, pre, they, the way they take down their political opponents is they create, a, they create a fake scandal and actually threaten people physically. It's scary. So you get people sending death threats to these guys. So the, it seems to me like the Justice Department is sort of out of control because you've got a really bad person running it. So, and I, hopefully the penny will drop. I think most Americans, I think I saw recently 70% of Americans would like witnesses, would like at least the effort of a fair trial here with, with everything, with the facts coming out. So I think, you know, yeah, if it goes the way you said, I think there's plenty of things you can say. It was, he, was, he, he was impeached. Everybody knows the facts of the case here. And, we could, and, there, and anybody who wasn't allowed to speak, they would then cover it as a cover-up. And remember, most scandals are really in the cover-up, not the scandal itself. So I think it's quite easy to, like, paint any uh, Republican uh, politician with uh, the shame of being part of somebody who's taking on and destroying the Constitution, which basically says you can't go after your political opponents using foreign aid. You know, Patrick, I, I feel much the same way, and it's one of the things that confuses me more than anything else 
is if you are a rational person and and Trump has already admitted, you know, to doing what it is he did, and you say to yourself, okay, well, I'm going to go with what my party wants. I'm not going to go against that. Um, You know, what happens in time with these people? I mean, there's a part of me that wonders if it would be the the destruction of the Republican Party to to go be going along with them. It could be, and I, my feeling is this time round there must be consequences for people who broke the law. I think for people who broke the law. I think we got to this point in time of people of the president being able to get away with murder almost effectively. I think we got to this point in time because we keep like. Oh, we must unify as a nation. So when um, uh, in, the, in the past, when you had the, the second Iraq war, that was a war crime. There should have been consequences, right? Uh, if, you, you know, if you looked at all the lies, then uh, then uh, McCain choosing Pal- uh, Palin as a, as to be next in line for the president, somebody who was totally incompetent. There should have been consequences for that terrible, terrible threatening decision, right? Just, I mean, he did it. It was a, you know. Well, they're and worried. Then, you know, and, then, and then the lies told by uh, Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan in that 2012 campaign, right. and the fact they were able to get away with it, there should be consequences. And now, uh, so until there are consequences for, for telling lies politically, massive lies politically, or actually breaking the law, like being a war criminal, until the consequences of that, what's stopping in the situation sliding worse and worse in the situation and people behaving more, more and more badly? Obviously, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes on this Ukrainian affair than even we know today. The way that we understand today, the way they were undermining professional people, professional people in the, in the acting public, public servants, and you know, making stuff up in fake investigations and stuff like that to dis- to defame, libel people, just out of short-term political gain, there should be constant. At some point, there has to be consequences. People in the Trump administration, I know that some went to jail already, uh, but they, you know, it's nothing that it doesn't seem to be that serious. It's more like a wrist slapping in many cases. But senior people, including Trump, and especially when we get to it, we all know what the story is with the taxes, right? You know, we know that he has. T- we all know what he's been doing with the taxes when he has to hide it. It's obvious that he would, t- he would give one set of numbers to the IRS saying that property was worth far less than it was, and he'd give another set of numbers to the banks saying his property was worth, you know, worth far more uh, in order to get the loans in the first place. And those loans were often backed by Deutsche Bank, which is also then you know, getting, getting funds, I believe, from the Russian government. But it, as this term comes out, serious jail time must be done. Otherwise, we'll just keep, politicians will keep doing this. They'll, we've lowered the bar so far that nobody seems to give a damn when a politician lies. Yes, it is true. It's, in fact, I think, Patrick, it's gotten to the point where for millions of people, if they subscribe to the right echo chamber, a lie, even though it's provable, if you use objective standards and more than one source, for millions of people, isn't even a lie because there are there are, as we are reminded by such as Kellyanne Conway, there are alternative facts. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're right, but I think, you know, obviously, you know, if you, if you take the global warming issue, people suffering, more and more people are actually beginning to feel the effects of themselves of it. I think that, you know, the, the party that's been denialist because they're in the pockets of special interest on this issue far more than the other party or the Republican Party, we must not forget, we must not forgive people who have denied what's happening with the climate, for instance, by way of example. And I think also, I think progressives need to approach some issues slightly differently and they need to be far more straightforward. I think the issue of religion, Christianity, I never hear fake Christians tackled properly. You can't just call yourself a Christian and be a trumpeteer. It's just not, they're, they're, they're polar opposite values. It doesn't make sense. Same thing with, with, with abortion. I, uh, people who are, who are pro-choice, I think they sort of tackle this wrong. They keep saying things like, uh, well, you know, you don't, you, only, you don't care about the fetus, you don't care about the veterans, which is true, absolutely true. But what then, the point they're all missing, the point the progressives miss, is that if you're pro-life and want to have that as part of the national agenda, policy agenda, you're actually increasing abortions by massive amounts. You're increasing maternity deaths by significant amounts. Americans, American maternity deaths is the only country on the planet. There might be some little squishy little place somewhere in the middle of nowhere. But bar, bar one country, I think, is the only country where maternity death rates are going up. Because if you can't talk about abortion, you cannot give women objective health care advice and resources and all the rest. So it's stop going around dodging the issue. Pro-life is fine in your own household, in your own home. There's a value, it's fine. But to have it as a policy agenda, America's the only country, civilized or developed country in the world that hasn't figured out how to handle abortion. And we need to start telling American pro-life people, you are guilty of a form of manslaughter on an epic scale. Patrick Andendahl is our guest. He wrote, he's written three books, maybe others, three that I know of. The one I'm holding in my hand is Deliverance from Stupid Party Land, How to Eradicate the Destructive Forces Destroying American Democracy. We'll be back with more of Patrick on the other side of a short break. Give us a couple of minutes. We are Manson Mitchell, and you are tuned in to Seattle's Home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 a.m. or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick and proud aunt. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. One in six. 
That little girl sitting alone at the playground, she can't play like the other kids. She doesn't have the energy because she's hungry. School lunch will be her only meal today. It breaks my heart that this is the reality in our country, but it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste. This food is then provided to families and children in need. Being a kid should be about using your imagination, learning, and having fun. These children shouldn't have to miss out on simply being a kid because they're hungry. To find out how you can help end childhood hunger in your community, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Patrick Andendahl once again to discuss how to eradicate the destructive forces working against our democracy. On Saturday, Pam Osley returns with what the color of your aura means, and yes, she will be taking calls. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell, and thank you, Leslie Gore. It's my party, and I'll cry if I want to. We we watch a lot of people on TV that are former Republicans and now are just disgusted with how that party is being handled. So we give them permission to cry. We are talking with Patrick Andendahl. And uh, Patrick, I want to make sure that we get out the name of all three of your books and your website, and how people can get those books. Okay. Well, the first book, Stupid Party, Massively Myth, was basically about it, you know, taking a timeline between 2000 and 2012-14 about how the Republican Party devolved and what it has become and continues to sink down that hole. I'd been in that book, I, I'd made some sort of minor error in my being too kind with George Bush Sr., so the second book was really an attempt to address that issue of George Bush Sr., and that's such a complicated subject, it really can't be done. So I used uh, Jeb as my proxy to talk about the Bush family, and, and therefore the prehistory of how Stupid Party was born, that's from 1930s, 1920s, I guess, through 2000. So that's what Jeb is really about, and the Bush family and the dynasty and the secrets they almost certainly hold to their grave. And then having done that, you know, I realized, especially Stupid Party might be sort of getting a bit, you know, some of the data was sort of getting, some of it was getting a bit old, but the point still remained the same. So I, I decided to wrap up the trilogy by saying, by taking us through to 2025, and, and everything written in the third book should not get dated or old for another seven or eight years minimum, telling you, explaining more big picture reasons how mankind got to the position where you've got such massive amounts of delusion and ignorance especially within the Republican Party, but we're all guilty of delusion and ignorance to some extent. Um, and so talking about that and then talking about a potential solution as to how this could rapidly unfold, I'm not sure if a solution can happen organically from the voter. I think the, the voter is getting so tired and beaten up. Uh, you know, I've got a feeling there has to be some sort of intervention in a few years' time. I mean, we could have good cycles within cycles, but the deterioration of American democracy is still highly is likely to carry on even more insidiously with a less transparent person than with Pence or Trump. Uh, so that's what the deliverance is about. So I have a website called Stupid Body Land where you know, I have various articles. I have a Twitter account, um, uh, and I can always, you can always direct message me on that, uh, at, at Andundle, and 
Twitter account. There. And Endall. And I want to yeah. spell your last name for people. It's A-N-D-E-N-D-A-L-L. -L. It's like three different words. And, yeah. and, and all. Yeah. And so I, I want to make sure people know how to spell it when they go to find you. So you can always direct message me on Twitter, um, and I'll normally pick up on that at some point. I mean, I don't visit it every day, but um, so you know. And I guess that, um, uh, you could. I think that's probably the easiest way to communicate with me if you've got something to say. But anyway, the books are all on sale on Amazon. The easiest way to handle it, and, and the three books will pop up there. And, you know, the thing, I, I guess the thing I'm proudest about is the fact that I've been able to write this from a sort of almost a conservative perspective. I mean, by, you know, by European standards, I'm really conservative. By, Europe, by American standards, I'm obviously not so much because I think America, is, there is virtually no, you know, I think virtually everybody is conservative in America. I think genuine left-wing people, even, even Bernie Saunders, by way of example, to me, isn't particularly isn't isn't much more progressive than most most of where Europeans Europe stands today. So you know I don't regard him as anything he says as far fetched at all. Um, so there's really no far left politics in the United States. <laughs> it's, all pretty, to... it's all pretty tame stuff. <laughs> uh, Patrick, you mentioned before the break you talked about fake Christians or fake Christianity. I'll just go back in my mind to 1984 with Orwellian overtones. 1984, I remember tracking the presidential election that year, at the end of which Ronald Reagan had won a 49-state victory over Walter Mondale. During that campaign, and it really came to my attention the summer of that year, convention season, Ronald Reagan made an alliance a pact, whether it was spoken or unspoken, there certainly were a lot of friendly words exchanged between himself and the moral majority led by Jerry Falwell. And I thought at the time, without subjecting it to any rigorous analysis, such as might be expected from a guy like you, that this is not going to work well for our republic in the long run. I just remember having that gut feeling as Ronald Reagan got cozy with Jerry Falwell, this is not good for America going forward. From all well, that's happened since, do you think that's a reasonable conclusion? Well, I think you were pretty um, prescient to even think that in 1984. And it would be, I don't think many people would have been that concerned about it back then, but you take it now, the events of today, and Jerry Falwell's son or whatever being in bed with these guys, and you got to, you got to ask why. And you know, there's the whole you know, without being libelous, there's various theories as to how you know, the pool boy and all that, the Florida pool boy and all that stuff going on. There's, there's got to be something that, that's going on because clearly there's not a single Christian value within Trump, right? I mean, right. <laughs> and also, so and actually, there's probably not really many Christian values in the Old Testament. So what, what, I, what I try and tell people is, like, if you're a Christian, by definition, you need to tr at least attempt to follow or believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ. That's very different. That's not an eye for an eye, by the way, and that's not stoning people. There's no... And, and, and the values that they talk... You know, sort of, and the values they talk about in the Old Testament, I mean, that they keep mentioning, there's no... There's, it's a pro-death value. I mean, human life didn't have any value in the Old Testament. There are 15 examples, 10 to 15 examples. Human life 
didn't have any value. The fetus didn't have any value until they, until they're like three or six months old. And then they count. But they were, the, the, the unborn, the children were constantly expendable. Nobody gave a damn in the Old Testament. So people who talk about the Old Testament, really, stop it. It's not a Christian book. The Christian book is the New Testament. And then you go and ask yourself, well, how come the Catholic Church, specifically, took, twisted the messages of the, of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was not a misogynist, right? So how did that happen? So actually, I do write, a, I, you know, all my books have sort of a religious theme about it. But what the way I've gone since writing these books is like, you know, you sort of given up, you give up looking for answers from the Bible, other than love and compassion from Jesus Christ. Obviously, those are important values. But seeking answers to the human experience, to everyday problems, other than compassion and basic Jesus' teachings, you've got to, you've got to start, start realize you've got to go more, you've got to become more philosophical. So the great philosophers of this world, um, they would, they, so going back 1,000 B.C., 500 B.C., they were explaining to us what we had to do, how we had to act. And if you actually, so I've been having a bit of fun with that in my own, my own thought experiment game, saying, you know, what would Socrates say? What would Plato do? What would Confucius say? And it's, very, it's really interesting when you look at their big ideas. Like Voltaire, he said, superstition, which is trumpeteers, sets the whole world in flames. Philosophy, being critical thinkers, they quench them. So, you know, we're trying to deal with the nonsense spoken about energy policy, and we're trying to squench it with clean, clean, with, with clean energy or whatever it is, you know. Uh, whatever subject the trumpeteers come up with, you know, the, we, we're just trying to solve the problem by understanding it. And they're just going on about with their myths and their, 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 their nonsense. Uh, one of the penalties, and, and again, Plato says, if you talk about you know, the, the role of the young, because the young are really bad voters, so what Plato would have said, one of the penalties for refusing to participate in politics is you end up being governed by your inferiors. <laughs> and I think that's sort of happening now. And I take, um, uh, let's take, the idea of constructing a rational argument distinguishes philosophy, critical thinking, from the superstitious and religious explanation. Trumpeters tend to be religious, but can they be Christians? And obviously I argue, no, they cannot be Christians, because so, so, the values are polar opposite. Um, uh, another one, Aristotle. All men by nature desire to know. So if you rely on ignorance, that makes you a faulty human being, right? It's a character flaw. Uh, so again, I can't, all these people going back, Socrates concluded there is only one good, knowledge, and one evil, ignorance. Knowledge is inexplicably bound to morality. Thus, we must continually examine our lives. So Socrates is basically saying, you know, the root of evil is ignorance. And if you think that's what the debate is, that's the debate we're trying to have in society. We're trying to educate people about basic facts, gun control, basic facts. I, I don't advocate, I don't go on about various gun control issues, but the message is the education people must have that owning gun ownership as a general rule does not make you safer. So you just need to become aware of the facts, and then you conduct your life accordingly, right? And that's, and I think so if you go, forget the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you're not going to get answers there. The answers are coming from the greatest thinkers this planet has ever come across, right? And that's basically the same, same thing. Knowledge, 
decency, morality, compassion. Treat people the way you want to be treated yourself. You don't like to separate families. You don't throw people out of the country. Immigration issues, the issue is really simple, and it's not explained properly to Americans. The U.S. Chamber, if, you want, if you're against immigration, the solution is dead simple. Just get the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to say you cannot get companies to stop hiring legal, illegal immigrants. But they don't want to do that because they want the cheap labor. So the, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is a Republican organization. So on the one hand, they want cheap labor. On the other hand, they want to blame immigrants for, for, for fake crimes and all the rest of the stuff. They want their cake and eat it. The immigration issue is purely, a, if it's a problem, it's purely an American a Republican problem. And the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is the people who need to solve it if you want to end immigration. Of course. But then, of course, immigration, you don't want to end it from an economic point of view because they're vital. I think 50% of the founders of, or the sons of, fa- sons of founders are uh, from immigrants, right? Elon Musk is an immigrant. And you go to the Fortune 500 companies. The amount of diversity and dynamics they brought to the economy is massive. So I'm not, I'm not you know, but if you are against immigration, don't blame the Democrats, blame the Republicans, because it's the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that's been setting the rules. I like that. You were speaking of philosophy and philosophers a moment ago, Patrick. One of the things that has always stuck with me, coming from Socrates, he was asked, what is the most vexing philosophical problem with which you have had to deal? And he thought for a moment and said, the prosperity of the wicked. And I thought, if you're talking about the problem of good and evil, how that gets diffused and deliberated in a society, it's like Suzanne likes to say, where you stand depends on where you sit. And so if you see wicked people getting ahead, that wickedness needs to be spelled out. It needs some definition. People who exploit a system for their own good and don't give a damn about how everyone else is doing can be lionized. They can, instead of there being penalties, they tend to get ahead. They get elected to high office. They become celebrities, while other people don't have more than $400 on hand if there's an emergency. Yeah. Well, the, again, the way the Republicans dodged that bullet, um, and they've been allowed to get away with it, um, is, well, they'll say... I just had a debate with someone the other day. They say, well, I'm actually a libertarian, um, Ayn Rand. I don't believe in government. And it's funny, this guy's, this guy's debating this in California. So, okay, you don't believe in water, in water energy policy to, to conserve water for seven years of drought, you know, like Joseph? Nope. Uh, but, it, no, the, uh, but the thing about libertarianism is, like, it was born out of fascism. They said that they obviously argue that the opposite of fascism. But if you go back to 1950, suddenly fascism and being a Nazi was slightly out of favor because they were caught with a pamphlet. And so to, you know, the Koch brothers and all the rest, so the way they got around that, because they obviously supported what the German industrialists were doing in the 1930s, because it's cheap labor or slave labor, which I think some massive percentage of the workforce were, like 40%, you know, it's good, good for the bottom line. So they liked that. Um, <laughs> So the way they got around that is to talk about libertarianism. Oh, I'm a libertarian. I don't want any interference. But the, the big, I think the weakness of the argument, apart from the fact it's highly egotistical and really selfish, is, is the core principle, and Ayn Rand herself, you know, that's what she advocated. Um, but the point is, what I would ask you to do is, like, okay, look at income discrepancy trends in the, last, in the United States, and to less extent even England, in the last 30 or 40 years, and 
imagine, just imagine if those trends carry on going the way they're going for the next yep. 40 years. You only have one, there's only one mathematical outcome, and that is, that is a that is, it might be initially a benign oligarchy dictatorship, but that will eventually obviously become unbenign, so that will lead to fascism. There's, there's no mathematical way out of libertarianism stoked with continued income discrepancy trends. So, you know, right now you have the top 1%, the top 0.01%, the top 0.001% running the country, running the, running the economy. If you let that continue unabated, you will end up with fascism. And it will be malignant, and all that will turn into malignant fascism. It's not, I just don't see a mathematical way out. So that's the problem, and that's how they're allowed to hide, or I'm a libertarian. I've known people who voted for the Republican candidate for about any office you care to name say to me, and they used to say it on air, I worked with some guys in radio who talked this way, I'm a small L libertarian. And I thought, and they were called out by someone else who was certainly a far lefty. Don't tell me that you're a small L libertarian because you don't want to be labeled a Tea Partier or a member of the Freedom Caucus, as it's known yeah. nowadays. It's a way of avoiding social censure when actually yep. your philosophy is not well thought out at all. I mean, how, how do you deal with wildfire, the, the, the causes of wildfire, the causes of Africa becoming an uninhabitable continent, theoretically, and all the pressures that would put on Europe and the United States? How do you handle that? Once you, once you know, what's the point of understanding the problem if you don't have the ability to execute on a solution, which is what lack of government regulation suggests. I mean, do you really want to drink bottled water when you know it hasn't been regulated? Do you want to breathe the air that some has been polluted because, out of because of profit? Do you really want that? Of course you don't. The people who say they don't want the government, no, the, Rep the Republicans love to have bad government, then they can blame the government. And, and obviously, Democrats are always trying to figure out ways of having a better government. That's, you know, that's a major motivational tool for both parties. Of course, the Republicans don't mind, mind bad government. It's, oh, what's, the point? what's the point of government? And if you think <laughs> the, people behind, the people behind Trump's, the biggest person behind Trump's success financially is this guy who lives on Long Island, Robert Mercer. He bought Cambridge Analytica. He's, he's the one who's totally anti-government. And he's still getting his wishes. And he's probably the main prime mover behind Breitbart and Cambridge Analytica and Trump. Yeah, so I'd then ask me this, uh, uh, riddle me this, Patrick. If that is true, and I don't doubt you, if that is true, what is the connection, if any, between those sorts of enterprises and one of the master enterprises of the contemporary world, which is social media, notably Facebook? That sounds like a very well, Facebook, dangerous you know, thing to well, when, when, when I wrote my deliverance book, I was trying to, I was, I, was, I was discussing Zuckerberg to some extent, and I was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, he was going on the, at the time, he was going on a tour, a listening tour, and he was probably thinking about politics just before he got into more problems with Congress. Um, so I was trying, you know, I'd always been slightly concerned, I'd always been concerned about him, but I was, giving, I was doing what I could to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, but really, I think he's gone off the rails, and I think really, uh, and I think um, even the younger generation is going off Facebook. It's, the, it's, it's us, it's us folkies who are still relying on it somewhat. But I, I don't really, I don't use Facebook for personal reasons at all. Um, but it's really scary. 
how social media, and I think what Facebook, I get confused now, they own Snapchat or something, I mean, or Instagram, I've forgotten who owns it. But, you know, they're controlling, they have so much control about the news we get. And, of course, social media is not about engaging the debate. Even, I, even I'm, to some extent, guilty of this. I mean, and I'm sure you guys are, too. You're preaching to an audience that you want likes. And that's the problem with social media. You're not, often, you're not really focused on facts. You're trying to get likes. So you can't even, you know, many things I can't say even to a progressive audience because, you know, there's not, I don't know, they're not hearing what they want to hear. And obviously progressives are more able to evolve and more able to change their views by, def, by science, scientific proof that the conservative brain is more stagnant, not, not capable of evolving as rapidly as the liberal brain. So, um, but still, even on the conservative side, we're all guilty of it. You have your audience and you sort of preach to that audience. And that's the problem with social media. I've been trying to figure out, just in my own life, how I can use social media to best effect. And you're right. It is about the likes and the loves and getting people to share what you put up because that's cheap marketing. And we're all guilty of it. We're all guilty. Of it. I, mean, I don't know you guys well enough. I'm, I'm just talking generally. I'm just talking in general. You know, you've got to be really careful. But you can. I think of radio. I mean, radio is guilty. Even... Uh, American radio, the general rules, are terrible liabilities. Not just social media. I've been on a lot of radio shows and just had to confront endless conspiracy theories. And it's like, really? Life is too short for this. And, and so I would say 80% of American radio is highly damaging. And we don't have that in the United Kingdom. And we have a, we have a tiny 2% of it. We don't have this nonsense that goes on. I, I, mean, I really... I just listen to podcasts. I can't find anything. I mean, NPR is boring. I don't want to hear about, you know, Peruvian folk dancing. So, <laughs> We're on the so same listen, page there, but NPR, NPR is hugely popular in the Seattle market. <laughs> uh, we have to go now, Patrick. I want to say thank you very much for joining us. We look forward to talking to you again. Patrick M. Andendahl. And the book I'm holding in my hand, I recommend to everyone, Deliverance from Stupid Party Land, How to Eradicate the Destructive Forces Destroying American Democracy. Thank you so much, Patrick. We'll do this again. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Really appreciate it. Very good. Coming up next is Christine Upchurch, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience, followed by American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. Today, the road to Roswell. Ooh-wee, look to the skies, everybody, and we hope you have a great weekend. Stay tuned to AM 1150. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.